2: When Andrew Biggio returned from tours in Iraq and Afghanistan with U.S. Marines, he had huge questions about the price of war. He decided to ask those who he knew would understand, veterans of World War II. His journey began when he bought a 1945 M1 Garand rifle and handed it to his neighbor, World War II veteran Corporal Joseph Drago. The rifle unlocked memories that Drago had kept unspoken for 50 years. Now... Over 100 veteran signatures cover Biggio's M1 Garand Rifle, and he has heard both the heroics and pain of the stories behind them. He began sharing these veteran stories with the world in his first book, The Rifle. And now he is back to share more in the highly anticipated sequel, The Rifle Two: Back to the Battlefield. So I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Andrew Biggio. He served as an infantry sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps and is a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan He currently serves on the police force in Boston, Massachusetts, and as president of New England's Wounded Veterans, Inc. Andrew, welcome back, and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World.
3: Thanks for having me again. It's awesome to be back, and never thought this project would spawn a second book.
2: You did a remarkable job. You know, you last joined me on Newt's World in June of 2021, to talk about your first book, The Rifle, Combat Stories from America's Last World War II Veterans, told through an M1 Garand, which became a bestseller. I understand you sold 40,000 copies. That's an extraordinary success for your first book. Why do you think your first book resonated with readers?
3: I think because I think it's the first time we've ever seen, in my opinion, the youngest generation of veteran in this country, right, post nine eleven veteran, Iraq, Afghanistan, saying goodbye to the oldest generation of veteran, which would be World War II right now. And to put two of them in the same room and talk about everything from the things that weren't so great about the greatest generation to... World War II veterans who don't want to die with their secrets, who have never talked about it until now. I think there's a lot of that. I think this book, and I've been told by other best-selling authors who have written many more books about World War II than me, that this is some of the last, best firsthand accounts of World War II, thanks to my project.
2: Do you think the fact that you had been in combat and you experienced it yourself gave them a sense of camaraderie that let them open up a little more personally?
3: I think I absolutely was trusted a little bit more than the average reporter, investigator, interviewer, because I had people reach out to me saying, hey, I was trying to get in touch with Mr. Smith for so many years. How did you do it? And a lot of that had to do with guilting them into wanting to meet with me and talk with me. I hate to say it like that, but I would always say, listen, I understand that you don't want to relive what you went through in World War II, but this young generation of veterans need to know the secrets I want to prevent as many veterans as I can from falling through the cracks. Tell us what you saw, what you went through, and how you were able to have a long, successful life after combat, have a family, have kids, have a career, go to college, what have you. And so I did a lot of that in book one. So book two, I did cover some chapters of guys who did fall through the cracks, World War II veterans who may have become alcoholics, some of them who lied about their service for years, guys who did prison time, guys who attempted... take their own lives. You know, this was stuff that I steered away from in volume one. I'm really
2: curious. This all begins because you buy a 1945 M1 to honor your great uncle, who was a U.S. Army soldier who died on the hills of the Italian countryside. What was that moment when you said, I'm going to go do this?
3: In Massachusetts, we name the intersections after fallen service members. Everything from World War One to Vietnam to present day. And I had to pass by Andrew Biggio Square every single day after I returned home from Iraq and Afghanistan and to see my own name up there. Which, you know, obviously wasn't my name. It's my namesake. It's the man I was named after who died when he was nineteen. I got sick of seeing that sign and not knowing what happened to him and not knowing how I could honor him since I got to live and I got to carry on the name. So, you know, I read through his letters that he wrote home before he was killed and how much he enjoyed the M one rifle. So I bought that rifle and I started to take it to other world war II veterans to see if they loved it just as much and what memories it would bring back to them. And it spawned this amazing journey. And I know when you introduced me, you said it was signed by over a hundred veterans. And that was true when I, last time I was on the show Now I have 320 names on this M1 rifle that's right here behind me. Wow. 300. You can't even see the wooden stock anymore, you know? Both sides covered. I chose to represent the entire war on that rifle. There's everything from Medal of Honor recipients to cooks to sailors to airmen to pilots to POWs to you name it, every campaign, every island, everything is represented on this one single rifle.
2: But when you buy the rifle, you then go next door to your neighbor. Did you know at that point that you were going to trigger the kind of conversation and openness and depth that occurred?
3: I had no clue. Joe Drago was a friend of mine and a neighbor. And When I met him, he was 92, very weak, not getting around any much, you know, bound to his recliner. And then when I put this rifle into his hands, the way he shouldered it, raised it up like it was nothing. The best was the smile from ear to ear. You know, he went from 92 to 19 years old again. And we sat there and we talked about the Battle of Okinawa for three hours. And it was the most therapeutic session anyone could ask for. He really painted the fact that, you know, I don't have to live in the shadows of World War II veterans, and sometimes the World War II veterans did things that people call us the greatest generation, but we did some not so great things to win World War II. And he normalized my service. He really did. He gave me something that propaganda couldn't cover up or movies couldn't pretend that, you know, World War II veterans are perfect and flawless. He gave me it how it actually was.
2: When did you realize that this would be a great book, that this was something that was your destiny?
3: I think the feedback from the veterans I served with, whose opinions and criticism were important to me, and then, of course, these World War II veterans that actually were coming out of the woodwork, guys I hadn't interviewed yet who had not signed the rifle, writing me letters and emails of what they thought about the book and the project. And that's what I knew onto something. And then, most importantly, when I would write a chapter of the book, reread that to the veteran who I met, and have them approve it and say, wow, that's amazing. I've never heard anyone tell my story that way. I knew I was on to something.
4: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com/news. That's LifeLock.com/news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
2: Hi, this is Newt, and my new book, "March the Majority: The Real Story of the Republican Revolution." I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March the Majority right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on the special offer. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. Did you have any particular pattern? I mean, do they come to you? Do you go to them? How did you track down folks?
3: Originally, when I was just a kid with a rifle and asking to come to somebody's living room, (laughs) I was reading the after-action reports of World War II, specific divisions or battles, and I'd pick names. I'd pluck names out of these morning reports, after-action reports, and I would Google these men, right, to see if I could find an obituary, to see if they were still alive, and Man, I can't believe how many World War II veterans passed away in the 80s, but these guys who I would find that would be still living and living on their own and actually answer their phone, I would say, hey, here's who I am. I'm a veteran. My uncle was killed in World War II. I'm doing this thing. And I'd get it either a click. I was a scam. They'd hang up on me or I would get a lonely man who doesn't have many visitors, has outlived his own spouse and his friends inviting me to come to his house. And for those veterans that were hesitant, I would end up writing them letters and showing them pictures of the rifle. And then I'd get the invitation to come over. So it wasn't always easy. But now, because of the traction this got and because of the hundreds of thousands of followers on social media, people are just dropping into my inbox and my emails with referrals of veterans that are their grandfathers, their great grandfathers and their neighbors.
2: When you would be told a story, how do you go back and verify it? Or do you?
3: That's a great question. That's a great question. Well, in Rifle 2, you're going to find out how I was burned severely. I had a guy get me good, you know. And being a police officer and a former detective, I did a lot of good things weeding out people that were full of it or lying or things like that. And, but some of these veterans have been lying for 75 years, 80 years. They're so good at it, you know, and they've lied to their own family members. And I go into the book about different reasons on why they lied. But one of the main reasons was nobody wanted to come home from World War II, not a hero. The World War Two vets were paraded in these big parades on the cover of newspapers, every movie, John Wayne and all this stuff. And everybody wanted to be a hero. And it was just hard to validate stuff back then because the war was so huge. You could say that you took out 17 Japanese pillboxes and go with it. But nowadays... We have so many with the after action reports and things like that that were declassified after 2006. You can read the morning reports on what that particular company did or platoon member did and who got awards and who didn't. And then you can find other living veterans and other guys who gave testimonies already. And, you know, you can do National Archive requests for discharge papers to see if this veteran really did. Five Purple Hearts, let's just say. So I did a lot of that. And one guy did get me really good. And it wasn't until I was standing in Normandy, France with him that I realized he was a liar, you know? So it's a good story. It's a good story.
2: Did you include his story in the book but point out it's not true?
3: I did. I changed his name, though.
2: You particularly wanted to get a story about the island of Pelu, which was a huge fight, one of the most bitter fights that the Marines had. We took a lot of casualties. Why were you that interested in that particular fight?
3: First things first is because I was a U.S. Marine myself. Second was what the big upset was, and I know what it's like to be upset, especially knowing that I have no idea what the future of Afghanistan is. The relations between Peleliu, right, which never got used by the government either. They never used Peleliu for a bombing campaign. They never used Peleliu for a airstrip all these Marines gave their life and fought in coral rock mountains and airfields and had no water for days. And they never made the real use for Peleliu. And that was a very upset. And that was very sad. And so I could see a lot of the frustration that a Peleliu veteran could have had that are similar to an Afghanistan war veteran. And to meet a particular veteran who survived the, Awful fighting. and I mean, this was an island where we saw a lot of macabre things done to one another. Marines find one of their own tied to a tree with his head cut off. And then you see Marines returning the favor with flamethrowers and collecting gold teeth and things like that. And I got one of the best firsthand accounts of that stuff by a gentleman by the name of Emilio Maglicane, who was with Able Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. That was really one of,
2: I guess, one of the most bitter fights in the whole Pacific campaign.
3: Yeah, it was. The Japanese, A, did not surrender. And the Marines got to the beach and realized all their water had been put in former oil drums. So the water was now polluted with oil. And trying to get new water to the beachhead was very difficult while the 1st Marine Division was still trying to make it advance. And then the way that the Japanese retreated into these coral rock mountains that even with naval air fire and airplanes, we could not penetrate the tunnels, the caves, the pillboxes. So it was really hand-to-hand combat, Marines having to hump flamethrowers up there to try to get rid of these Japanese enemy emplacements. And then at the end of it, there was never any development of that island for real strategic to win World War II, to win the Pacific Theater.
2: I think it's kind of intriguing with... All the high technology stuff. One of the great breakthroughs in the war for us was the use of Native Americans. And you got involved in that and you talked to several of the code talkers of the book. Uh, What was your sense of the various Native Americans who came in and really were able to stop the Japanese who couldn't break the code because they didn't understand any of the languages that were being spoken?
3: Yeah, I thought it was interesting because I never knew that there was 12 different, I guess you could call them dialects or types of Native American language spoken during World War II. So the Navajo code talkers, they're the most famous because they were in the Marines and the Marines had the best (laughs) propaganda of that time, thanks to their uniforms and the flag raising on Iwo Jima. But there was Iroquois code talkers, there was Mohawk code talkers, Seminole code talkers. And I got to meet a Mohawk code talker at age 99 on the reservation up in New York. And he was on the New York Canadian border up there. And what he did to protect the code in the Island of the Philippines, he was a U.S. army soldier, signalman, you know, radio man. And there were times where he said he'd be speaking Mohawk to another Mohawk code talker on the other end of the radio and things would just go silent. And that would most likely believe that that soldier had gotten killed or overrun and, It was amazing what those guys did to come together. And some of them were so young that they couldn't enlist in the military. So they had their parents sign off for them and their parents couldn't read or write English. So a lot of these enlistment papers are done with just symbols of their parents.
1: Is necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: You still have about 150,000 World War II veterans who are still alive, and I know you had an opportunity to actually be at the Capitol when Herschel Woody Williams was recognized in the Rotunda. He was the last. Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. What was that like to be there and see, I think on behalf of all the World War II veterans, this great soldier being recognized in the national capital?
3: Yeah, that was my first time, I think, actually being in the national capital and to see the flag-draped coffin of the last Medal of Honor recipient in there, historic, absolutely historic. And it was just also a gigantic Symbol. It was a milestone to let us know that the World War II generation only has single-digit amount of years left to be amongst us. I think it was a huge awakening.
2: I was a little surprised you wrote, this book will mark the end of my World War II research. Do you feel like after two volumes, you'd need to go on to something else?
3: Yeah, because... Chasing ghosts is not easy. I spent a lot of time away from my family and kids now. I have two sons. These are things that didn't exist before I started getting signatures on this rifle. And to try to get an accurate description of a particular battle or a particular veteran, I might have to leave Boston and go to Bend, Oregon, just to hear it. And it never used to be like that. A lot of authors who've written books about World War II back in the 70s, 60s, 80s, you know, at that time, they were fortunate to have veterans in their own home state or even their hometown who went through particular battles or were in certain divisions. And that's just not the case anymore. It's not. And I think I've done my due diligence with two and hopefully two best selling books to portray some of the last firsthand accounts. And I'm ready to take on another group of veterans or even write books about police officers and so forth.
2: Are you at all tempted by the Korean War, which had certainly an extraordinary number of very heroic and very difficult fights?
3: A lot of people ask me about the Korean War. And the sad truth is there's actually less Korean War veterans than there are World War II veterans. It would probably be easier to write a book about World War II right now.
2: I hadn't thought of that. My dad, who's passed away, was very briefly in World War II, but then served in Korea and became regular army.
3: Yeah, there's less Korean War combat veterans than there are World War II veterans.
2: That's amazing. When you think about it, with all the interviews you've done, what do you think is the greatest lesson you learned from the World War II veterans you talked with?
3: It's funny because, you know, in my police job, things are a lot stressful, and sometimes I would take stress home. And I think I've met a lot of World War II veterans who then became police officers also. And they didn't just teach me how to become a good veteran, but they taught me how to be a good father, a good husband, a good neighbor, a good community person. And I try to take that stuff away, not just the how to deal with what you saw in war, but how to make the longevity you can with the career you chose and the different types of mentalities that you may have inherited from your experiences. And that's what I try to when I look at the rifle, I try to think of these noble men. Who Some of them had bumpy roads, and some of them set the example on how to live a life after war.
2: Are you at all tempted to maybe do something similar with policemen, since you are a policeman? And with all the challenges we have now with, you know, people killing cops and kind of attitude that is really, I think, very scary.
3: It's very scary. You never know the person you're going to encounter is going to be someone who supports police or someone that would love to film your death. It's rough. I like to hope to believe that it's more of a 75% support cops out there than 25% don't. I try to believe that. So Maybe I'm in denial and it's actually 50-50. But I want to do something either where I interview wounded veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan because right now you have the survivability rate of injuries are the most high of any war thanks to the Development and technology and evacuation from the battlefield. You have veterans that have survived injuries that have never survived these kinds of injuries in any other war. So I was thinking about interviewing a group of these men about their life recovery and recuperation after the global war on terrorism. And I've also thought about doing something with police officers whose stories aren't always covered in the news that have done absolute heroic things.
2: It's interesting because I think, particularly in the current environment, it takes fully as much courage to be a policeman. As it does to be in the military. As you know, because you live it, every day you go out, you're in a world that could suddenly turn dangerous instantaneously.
3: It's the truth. I mean, I've almost lost my life more times as a police officer than I did as a Marine, knock on wood. And I want the good Lord to stay with me, and I want to just help the people in the community that need it.
2: I want you to know that whatever you decide to do next, we'd love to have you come back and share it with us because. You do very interesting work and very patriotic work, and I think work that brings hope and a sense of fulfillment to a lot of people. I think that you're giving them a chance to get their life out in the open, to share with others, and to really help us come in touch with sort of the best of the American tradition. And whether you do it on veterans or you do it about the police, I'm confident you've now really developed the ability to listen well and to draw out of people great stories and great insights and remarkable recommendations. So I want to thank you for joining me and for honoring the stories of those who served our country and both of your books. I think of it genuinely as a work of dedication on your part and a work of patriotism. Your new book, The Rifle Two Back to the Battlefield, is available on Amazon and bookstores everywhere, and we'll have it on our show page. So, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your work and your thoughts with us.
3: Thank you for having me, Newt. Glad to be back.
2: Thank you to my guest, Andrew Biggio. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Rifle Two: Back to the Battlefield, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal
4: podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.